granted, and I am so excited to dive back into the book of Daniel. I just want to say a huge thank you to our brother Sergio. Wherever he went, he's somewhere here, somewhere in this room. There he is. Thank you, Sergio, so much for bringing the word these last two weeks, for taking us deep into the gospel, into our union with Christ, for excellently expositing the word of God in such a way where our hearts resonated with the glory that's found in being uh, unified with Christ. So thank you so much. Sergio, can we thank him for bringing the word? Thank you, Sergio. If you have your copy of God's word, I invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Music is so powerful. Even just singing these last few songs, music is such a powerful tool that God has given, a gift that God has given to us. It's amazing to think that God is the one who invented a C-sharp minor chord. I love that. He's the one who dreamed it up. He's the one who thought it up. He's the one who made it for our enjoyment and for his glory. Music can bring back so many vivid memories. It can change the way that we even feel. You remember uh, Saul in um, the Old Testament was struggling with the, the demons and uh, was struggling with a, a spirit of bitterness and anger and David shows up and plays music and playing music changes Saul's temperament. It changes his emotions. It's so powerful. Music is so powerful that there are certain melodies that get stuck in our minds. I don't know if you've ever had that when you're going to sleep and you, you can't get this melodic line out of your mind. It, music is so powerful, we can even remember uh, movies based off of just a, a single melodic line, a melody. For instance, we play this game all the time in my house where I play a clip of a song and I ask my kids, what, mo what movie is it from? And they have to tell me and it's kind of recognizing it, kind of remembering what scene it's from. Let's try that out. If I were to say, what movie is this from? Da 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 What's it from? Jurassic Park, right? Or, better yet, dun 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 da dun dun da dun. What's that from? We know it. In the same way that melodic lines get lodged in our memory and are used in a movie to connect all of the other substructures and all the substories and bring them together, so too in the Bible, the Bible is filled with books that have a melodic line, a purpose and a point, a melody that runs throughout, a distinct note, a distinct sound, a distinct theme. And the book of Daniel, as we've been going through it, the melodic line in Daniel, the distinct tone of the book of Daniel, the distinct theme in Daniel is that God is sovereign over all things. God is completely sovereign. We saw this at the very beginning, Daniel chapter 1. It's not Nebuchadnezzar taking the Israelites captive. It's God allowing that to happen. It's God sovereign over that act. We saw in Daniel chapter 2 that God sovereignly reveals the contents of dreams. Daniel chapter 3, God sovereignly rescues his people. And here, Daniel chapter 4, God sovereignly rules over all things, and his kingdom is an everlasting, eternal kingdom. In the chapter that we're going to be studying uh, this morning and then on in the next few weeks, 
you see something that's emphasized over and over and over again. You remember back then, they didn't have bold typeface. They didn't have italics. So if you want to emphasize something in the Bible, the biblical authors would repeat something over and over and over again. And here in Daniel chapter 4, we have a term that's repeated six times in this one chapter, and it hasn't been used before in the book of Daniel. It's the term most high. The most high. That's the entire point of the book of Daniel. And here we are taken deep into the beauty of who God is as the most high God, sovereign ruler over all things. It's used in Daniel 4, 17, 4, 25, and 4, 32. It's the exact same quote in all three of those verses. The most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. Daniel's driving home the theme of God's sovereignty in every chapter in this book in various ways. And here again, a fresh nuanced take on God's sovereignty, namely that God is sovereign over every throne, over every human authority, ruler, and kingdom. And yet, though God is clearly sovereign, and that is not up for debate, and that is the melodic line in Daniel chapter 4, in the whole book of Daniel, and really... The kingdom of God is a theme throughout the entirety of the Bible. Though God is in control and we are not, we daily, moment by moment, we kick against this. We fight against this. There's something that doesn't sit well with us when we think about God being in control and us not being in control. We functionally don't want this to be the reality. And in this case, we are just like King Nebuchadnezzar. This morning, what I want us to do as we go through verses 1 through 18 is I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of Nebuchadnezzar. I want us to ask a lot of questions about what he's going through, about why he's experiencing what he's experiencing and how he's experiencing these things. And I want us to see that we struggle with the exact same thing that Nebuchadnezzar struggles with. We might struggle with it in different ways. But this morning, we will see three amazing lessons that we can learn from Nebuchadnezzar's life as he sits under the sovereignty of God, as he kicks against it, and ultimately at the end of this chapter, he's going to come to glory in God's sovereignty. Three lessons learned from Nebuchadnezzar in this chapter, specifically for our time this morning, verses 1 through 18. So would you read with me as we start in chapter 4, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king... To all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue that inhabit all the earth, may your peace abound. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and the wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, and how strong are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. I was flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed and the visions in my head, kept alarming me. So I gave a decree to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of this dream. So the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in, and I said the dream to them, but they couldn't make out its interpretation known to me. 
But at last, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom a spirit of the holy gods. And I said the dream to him. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is difficult for you, say to me the vision of my dreams, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now, these were the visions in my head as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky inhabited its branches, and all flesh fed itself from it. I was looking in the visions in my head as I lay on my bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He called out loudly, and he said thus, chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet, leave the stump with its roots in the earth, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind, or literally his heart, be changed from that of a man, and let the heart of a beast be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This edict is by the resolution of the watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind, and gives, to, gives it to whom he wishes, and sets it up over the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, say to me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Let's pray together. Father, we come to this passage and be very easy to read it and to ask, what relevance does this have to my life? What significance does this play in my daily living? It'd be very easy to think that this is something that occurred so long ago with someone that's so foreign to the way that we think and feel and live that this really doesn't apply to us. It'd be very easy to go through this very technically, very quickly, just explaining what the dream is and moving on. But God, that's not what you have for us. That's not what Nebuchadnezzar desires from this chapter. And I pray that we would see that. I pray that we would see his heart and what he desires for us to see, to learn, to know. That he would be a sort of father fig figure to us in this moment to say, learn from my mistakes. Don't do what I did. May we learn from him. And most importantly, may we learn from you as you teach us. Holy Spirit, be our guide this morning. 
Open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. We need your help. We come completely dependent to you. And we ask that you would do the work of granting to us that gift of illumination, that we would see, that we would respond, that we would leave here changed and affected by our time in your word this morning. We pray it all in the name of you, the Most High God, our Savior. Amen. Daniel chapter 4, I want to give a little bit of the context here, just because we haven't been in Daniel for a while. Daniel chapter 4 occurs about 30 years after the events of Daniel chapter 3. We're fast-forwarding a bit. We know that because we know that there is a time of peace happening. He's flourishing. He is at ease in his house. There's no war. There's no battles. There's no conflict. And that only happened at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. We also know that all of the huge building projects that Nebuchadnezzar had done uh, are completed at this time. And that also only happened at the end of his reign because we see here in the text that Nebuchadnezzar is going to look out over his palaces and say, look at how amazing Babylon is. This is what I've done. Look at what I've built. This is all by my hands. So this couldn't be at the beginning. It has to be at the end. Also, we have several extra biblical references to King Nebuchadnezzar going crazy. You remember at the end of this chapter, he turns into that cow, bird, eagle, crazy man. And we see that that only happened at the very end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. And to give just context and kind of a chronology for this chapter, the illness that Nebuchadnezzar is going to go through, the insanity that he's going to go through, it takes a year from Daniel explaining this dream to him going through the experience of this crazy illness, this insanity. So it's a year. So it's 12 months from Daniel giving the interpretation of the dream to it actually coming true. So that's one year. And then as we read, it's going to take seven years for Nebuchadnezzar to experience this. So he's going to experience this insanity for seven years. And then after the seven years, he's going to prosper again, which we can probably give about a year. Let's give it about a year for him to come to a place where he's prospering in his kingdom again. So that's a total of nine years. So nine years fits in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar's reign was 43 years from 605 to 562 BC. And so if we just calculate nine years to the very, very end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which we probably could do, that means that this occurred, chapter 4 occurs, no later than 571 BC. So this is all the way at the very end, about 9 to 10 years before Nebuchadnezzar's reign is going to end. All that to say, there's a massive gap of time between chapter 3 and chapter 4. The lessons learned from chapter 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Nebuchadnezzar has forgotten them. And Daniel and his three friends are now in their late 40s, early 50s. I love that. The the middle years of Daniel's life, he's going to give us one event, this, Daniel chapter 4. He's not going to give any other event. He's not going to talk about anything else. He gave us a few at the very beginning when he was a teenager or an early 20-year-old man. And now he's going to give us one when he's 45 to 50 years old. And he's going to give us a lot at the end of his reign. Largely quiet These middle years are. They're marked by one solitary event worthy of recording. And I love that. Because Daniel would say, if he were here today, yeah, my life was kind of boring. Nothing really eventful to describe. One really cool event happened, and I wrote it down in my 50s. But yeah, one happened when I was a teenager. One happened in my 50s. 
If you're here this morning and you think, my life is kind of boring, I'm waiting for something amazing to happen, join the club. (laughs) Daniel here is saying, just live a faithful, obedient lifestyle and watch God do miraculous things. Chapter 4 is unique. One last bit of introductory information. Chapter 4 is really unique for three main reasons. Number one, it fast-forwards so quickly, a 30-year gap between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Number two, it switches back and forth between first person and third person. We even see a switch here in verse 15. There's a very interesting grammatical switch. And number three, this is a unique chapter because it's the only Old Testament passage that's written by a Gentile pagan king. It's the only Old Testament passage written by a a Gentile at all. In the New Testament, we have a a couple books written by a Gentile, namely Luke and Acts. But in the Old Testament, this is the, the only glimpse that we have of a Gentile taking up the pen and writing down what he experienced. What did he experience? Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, to all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue that inhabit all the earth, may your peace abound. It seemed good to me to declare what God has done. Literally, it was beautiful before me to do this. I wanted to tell of what God had done in my life. So what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is he's front-loading this chapter by saying, I'm going to tell you the story of my life, the story of this event in my life. But before I get to the end of it, before anything happens, I want you to know the conclusion right up front. So he's giving us the conclusion in the introduction. He's saying the whole point of chapter 4 is to see the glory and the grandeur and the greatness of God being sovereign. That's the point of Daniel chapter 4. That's the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned. How great God's signs are. How strong his wonders are. And that his kingdom, not ours, is an everlasting kingdom. That's the message that Nebuchadnezzar wants us to get. This happens actually a, a lot in the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 73, you guys remember? Surely God is good to Israel. And to those who walk in uprightness of heart. Surely God's good. To his people. Yet for me, my feet had almost slipped. I almost came to the point of stumbling. And then Psalm 73, the author goes through this whole predicament that he had of saying, is it really worth it to follow God? I'm kind of thinking it's not worth it. I see the wicked prospering. I see the, the holy, the righteous ones that are dying. It makes no sense to follow God. That's kind of his end, right? He says it makes no sense. There's no difference. Just give it up. Don't follow God. And then he says, but I remembered their end. Remember, he goes to the temple. I remember their end. I remember how my eternal destiny is different than the wicked's. I remember the eternality of what's going on, and I rejoiced. But he front loads Psalm 73 with, God is good. I'm going to go into a story that questions his goodness, but God is good. Same thing here. Nebuchadnezzar is saying, I'm going to go into a story where I questioned God's sovereignty, and I wrestled with being king over my own life. But I want you to know right up front, God is king, and that's something that we should glory in. He says, I want to declare the signs and wonders of the Most High God. Signs, that's something that points something out, and when it's used of God, it's used of pointing out God's existence, that God exists, that he's working in this world. Wonder, that's something that produces astonishment. So when you use signs and wonders together, You're saying that a sign pointed to God's existence and produces astonishment in you. That's what's happening here with Nebuchadnezzar. And God's kingdom 
is everlasting. His dominion is eternal. There are no interruptions to God's rule. There's no end to God's sovereignty. It's very interesting. Just mark it down. Psalm 145, verse 13, is almost identical to what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. Psalm 145, verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures throughout all generations. Also, Psalm 97 is very similar. Psalm 107 is very similar. Where would Nebuchadnezzar have learned these psalms? You remember, most of the book of Psalms had already been written at this point. And so I think Daniel reciting, maybe having memorized or maybe bringing a couple scrolls with him, he's describing the glory of God and the grandeur of God to Nebuchadnezzar. And that's what makes Nebuchadnezzar remember at these moments and speak in biblical language. After all of the events of this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar wants us to know how amazing God is and that God is sovereign over all things, that his kingdom never ends. Nebuchadnezzar's reign is 43 years long. That's a long reign. But compared to the reign of God, that reign is as short as your next breath. God is sovereign. We are not. Verse 4 gets us into the story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, flourishing in my palace. I was at ease. That's being content, having security, no fighting, no conflicts. I was flourishing. Literally, it's a word meaning growing green. It's, uh, it's a word used to describe kings and trees in the Old Testament, which is ironic because we're going to get a dream from a king about a tree. And he's flourishing. Everything's going well. He's prospering. Verse 5, I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. This is the second dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember chapter 2, we got Nebuchadnezzar's first dream, the, the statue with uh, gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron and clay. We got uh, a dream, and you remember what it's all about, right? It's all about the kingdoms that are going to progress, and then ultimately all of the earthly kingdoms are going to fail, and God's kingdom will be established forever. The whole point of that dream is Nebuchadnezzar, I have raised you up. God's telling him, I've raised you up. I've given you a kingdom, but it's going to end. Don't place all of your hope in your kingdom. Don't place all of your security in your kingdom. Place your security and your hope and your satisfaction in my kingdom. My kingdom's eternal, not yours. And you remember, does Nebuchadnezzar get that? No. He goes to the next chapter and builds his own statue to say, my kingdom's going to last forever. My kingdom's going to last forever. Here we have another dream. And it's pretty much saying the same thing. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom's going to end. He didn't get it. He didn't get it the first time. And we don't either. And here's our first lesson. Three lessons learned from King Nebuchadnezzar. First lesson, lesson number one. We quickly forget the wonderful works and words of God. We quickly forget the wonderful works and words of God. Now, it's been 30 years for Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar experienced chapter 3, where three guys were thrown into a fiery furnace, and a fourth showed up, and they came out with not even the smell of smoke on them. He experienced a miracle. How many times have you shared the gospel with somebody, and they say, if only God would give me a miracle, would prove himself. If God is real, atheists tend to say, if God is real, why is he so hard to find? Why doesn't he just make himself known? If I could just have a miracle, just show me a sign, I would believe. Well, Nebuchadnezzar had 
one of the craziest signs of all. Seeing these three men not die, not even have any of their hairs singed. And he forgot. He forgot. Or better yet, it lost its impact. I don't know if you've ever been through something like that where you say, man, I'm never going to forget this. I've had amazing ones. Some of you know stories of uh, my son and how he had open heart surgery when he was a little baby and you know, we were praying and God graciously spared his life. I've had little ones, seemingly pointless ones. I remember in high school, I broke my thumb and trying to do anything with a broken thumb is so challenging. I don't know if you've ever broken a finger or broken a bone. And, and I just remember saying to myself, when I get this cast off, I am never going to take my thumb for granted ever again. I am just going to praise the Lord and thank him every day for giving me a thumb. How cool is this appendage? How awesome is this design that God gave me this ability? And I remember for probably about a month and a half afterwards, every day when I'm combing my hair or I'm showering or whatever, I would say, God, thank you so much for my thumb. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> it's been a long time since I woke up and said, God, thank you so much for my thumb. Not that I've forgotten. I just relayed the story to you. But it's lost its impact. What is it for you? Where has God proven himself faithful? Where has God demonstrated a, a majesty and a glory that has settled so deeply into your soul? And you would say, I'm never going to forget this. I see God's faithful. I've talked with many of you where you say, I have questioned God's faithfulness. I've wrestled with, does he care about me? Does he love me? And then this happened in my life, and I'm never going to doubt that ever again. And then we walk away and we start doubting it. This is why in the Old Testament they would raise those Ebenezers. You remember those memorial stones. Let's build something so that every time we walk by this we remember. And our kids say, what's that monument for? And we can say, this is what God did. Ebenezer just means up to this point God's always helped us. Therefore he's always going to help us. We need to do that. We need to build Ebenezers in our lives or else we will functionally live as if those amazing things that God graciously allowed us to experience never happened. We quickly forget the wonderful works and word of God. God had spoken to Nebuchadnezzar in one amazing, profound dream. Uh, Daniel was able to make known that dream in Daniel chapter 2, tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is and the meaning of the dream. And then Daniel chapter 3, the three friends of Daniel were saved in the fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't allow those things to have an impact in his heart. And therefore, God, in his grace, gives a second dream, another dream. And note this as well. God could have said, I gave you all the evidence you need, man. I gave you all the proof you need, and you have forgotten. You've let it lose its impact, but not our God. Our God is so gracious. Nebuchadnezzar, I need to get your attention again. And if I can just say, spoiler alert, End of chapter 4, I believe Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. I think we're going to see him in heaven. So God could have said, you've had enough, man. You've had enough options. You've had enough chances. You've had enough opportunities. And you keep on rebelling. I'm done. I'm done with you. He could have said that. But instead, he goes, I want you. I love you. And I'm going to give you another chance to repent. And he's going to do it. And I think Nebuchadnezzar is going to repent. And maybe that's what God's doing here this morning with you. 
Maybe you're here this morning and you have been wondering about the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God. Maybe you've forgotten the impact that God has had in your life in some way, shape, or form. And God has you here this morning to remind you of his goodness and his grace. We're just like Nebuchadnezzar in that we forget so quickly what God has done in our life. Verse 5, he sees the dream and it makes him fearful. He has the fantasies in his mind, the visions in his head alarmed him. They kept on alarming him. In the present progressive, it's continually happening. This wasn't just, oh, that was a scary dream and move on. It was continually alarming. Kept on terrifying. There's a word for fear in Hebrew that's in, uh, in Aramaic. That's in verse 5. It made me fearful. And then there's another word beyond that, alarming. Nebuchadnezzar is terrified. And that makes me stop and ask the question, why? He is the most powerful man in the whole wide world. He's fought against nations. He's beaten armies. He's done awful, horrific things to people. And he's afraid of this. Why is he so afraid? What could possibly strike fear in Nebuchadnezzar? And we can, we can throw out the dream as far as the images are concerned, right? He's not dreaming about monsters. He's not dreaming about something terrifying in the dream as far as the visions are concerned. It's a tree, and it's not like a Tim Burton-y, gnarly kind of tree. It's a tree, and it's a beautiful tree. It's a big tree. It's a majestic tree. It's not the images that are terrifying Nebuchadnezzar. It's what the images represent. Namely, that what this man has loved his entire life, more than anything, and what he's given everything to keep secure and hold, will be lost. What could strike fear into the heart of the most powerful man in the world knowing that his power could be taken away? Everything that he's placed, his hope, his goals, his dreams, his satisfaction, and his identity is going to come crashing down. And the same is absolutely true for you and for me. We are most agitated, we're most fearful and scared, we're most worried and anxious, we're most impatient and frustrated when what we love and value and treasure the most, whatever it might be, is threatened. And so here's lesson number two. Lesson number two learned from Nebuchadnezzar. We, like him, are terrified to lose what we love. We, just like Nebuchadnezzar, are terrified to lose what we love. What is it for you? What would strike fear in your heart? Whatever you're building up as your kingdom, whatever would threaten your greatest satisfaction, your greatest hope. A great way to ask this question is what, what produces anxiety in your heart? What stresses you out? When you are despairing, why do you despair? What tends to bring about that sense of hopelessness? Emotions are God's helpful way of kind of being check engine lights in our life. Something's wrong, and there's a blinking check engine light on your car when something's wrong under the hood. So, too, God gives us emotions to kind of say, hey, there's something going on in your heart. Check underneath the hood. Check your engine. Emotions do that. And as we've said before from this pulpit, one of the best questions that I ask myself every day, this is literally a daily question, 
when I respond, typically for me, it's either some sense of uh, impatience, uh, anger, frustration, or uh, a sense of despondency, kind of woe is me, and uh, just getting down. Those are kind of my two emotional responses. And I always ask myself, when those come up, what am I getting that I'm not wanting, and what am I wanting that I'm not getting? Because that's my idol. That's my satisfaction. That's what I don't want to lose, or what I want that people aren't giving to me. Here, Nebuchadnezzar loves his kingdom, his power, his authority, and he sees a dream that I think he knows, this is about me, and I think my kingdom's going to go away. What is it for you? Maybe it's control. Maybe it's when you feel like you're in control of everything, then you can be happy. Sure, you're not a king, but maybe it's control. Maybe it's the sense of when I feel like I have everything under control, all the plates are spinning, I'm okay, I can sit down at ease, be content, everything's fine. But when something's out of control, stress, frustration, anxiety, frantically moving around, maybe it's a, maybe it's a sense of being understood. Maybe you get most frustrated when you feel like, I have said this over and over again and nobody understands me, nobody gets me, nobody, nobody understands what's going on. I don't know what it is for you. My guess is, if you're married, your spouse might know. They might be able to help you. Hey, I think I've seen a pattern. When you respond this way, I think it might be this. So if you are married, I would just encourage you. Go to your spouse today and say, if I responded righteously, and you knew I wasn't going to get angry, what is it that I struggle the most with that you have seen and you can help me? If you knew I wasn't going to respond in anger, what do I need to work on? Maybe you can do that with your best friend. If you're not married, you can do that with somebody around you who's close to you, who knows you. We're just like Nebuchadnezzar, being terrified to lose what we love. Well, Nebuchadnezzar gives a decree, verse 6. I gave a decree to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon. We already know this story. We know how this is going to go. We've seen this before. The Chaldeans are just as impotent in chapter 4 as they were in chapter 2. The scholarly guild of wise men cannot deliver. They are reliably, consistently, and magnificently incompetent people. And so Nebuchadnezzar, like the fool who keeps doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, he goes to them, he says, can you please tell me what this dream means? I just love the irony. Nebuchadnezzar, his name, he's named after the Babylonian god of wisdom. And he doesn't know. He's left in the dark. But the magicians here, not only are they completely incompetent, they're worse than chapter 2. Because in chapter 2, they didn't even know what the dream was. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar said, tell me the contents of the dream and the interpretation of the dream. Here, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'll give you the contents of the dream. I'll tell you what was in the dream. And they still don't know it. And actually, better said, I think they know it. They don't want to say it. Just reading this, you and I know probably what this means. Nebuchadnezzar, maybe he's the tree, or maybe the tree is his kingdom, and it's going to be cut down. Something that's growing, which is what's happening here, is going to be chopped down. I don't think that they want to tell him. Who wants to tell the king, yeah, you're going to be chopped down? Nobody wants to tell him that. Which, when we get to next week, Lord willing, Daniel's going to 
have the courage to say that in the most amazing, compassionate way. It's mind-blowing the way Daniel responds. He's terrified. Actually, same word of Nebuchadnezzar's being alarmed is used to Daniel. Daniel's alarmed when he hears about this dream, and he doesn't want to have to say it, but he says it, and he says it in the most gracious way. But that's for next week, Lord willing. So, the wise men can't answer. They can't respond. They don't know. Verse 8, but at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. I think at the time of this circumstance happening, Nebuchadnezzar is not saved. I think that that happens at the very end of this chapter. So he says, I'm still trusting in the God, Marduk. I'm still trusting in that God. But he knew that something was different with Daniel. Daniel was connected to Yahweh in a supernatural way. The holy God of Israel had communicated through Daniel and to Daniel That's why Nebuchadnezzar had made him the chief magician, the chief over all, the head magician, the head dream teller. So he goes to Daniel. Verse 10, he explains, this is the vision in my head as I lay on my bed. I was looking, literally in Aramaic, looking, I was looking. So it's a very intense, I need to know this, I need to see it, I need to keep on understanding Behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Now, Daniel's going to give us a fuller explanation of this dream, and we'll look at that next week. But just for here, and again, I I think it's pretty obvious what this dream means. We'll we'll just slowly go through it. Uh, We'll do it more slowly next week. We'll do it quickly this week. There's a tree. The tree is massive, magnificent. It's beautiful, and all flesh feeds from this tree. A tree represents King Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. That's what the tree represents. Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 19, Ezekiel 31, Amos 2, all places in the Old Testament that deal with a king or a kingdom being represented by the growth of a tree. So this isn't anything new. This is a common reference, a common vision, a common dream, a common expression. And this tree is beautiful. Verse 10, or verse 12, its foliage is beautiful, its fruit is abundant, its Uh, Food for everyone. And all the beasts of the field find shade under it. All the birds of the sky inhabit its branches. All flesh fed itself from it. That part of the dream is not the scary part. That's not the part that I think Nebuchadnezzar is wondering about. It's what happens next. What happens to the tree. Verse 13. I was looking in the visions in my head as I lay on my bed. And behold, a watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. A watcher. Literally, it's... Uh, one who is awake in the Bible, in all of the Bible, this word, watcher, is only found here in Daniel chapter 4. It's used three times in this chapter, and it's only used here. So the question is, who is this watcher? What is this watcher? What are they doing? Who are they? And how would we know it? My guess, just to uh, give my explanation, I believe it's an angel. I believe it's probably a cherubim. Uh, having many eyes. You remember Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 18, the cherubim are described. Cherub, cherubim, the, the M, I, I, M at the end of the word is the Hebrew S. It's the Hebrew plural. So cherub is a singular cherub. Cherubim is cherubs. It's multiple cherubs. So the cherubim are described in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 18 as having eyes all over the place to watch what's going on. And I think that's probably what this reference is to. There's a watcher. It's a holy angel watching. 
And he calls out loudly, verse 14, after he descends from heaven, he calls out loudly. Literally, it's crying out with might and strength. Chop down the tree. Cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage. Scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet, leave the stump with its roots in the earth and a band of iron and bronze around it. Leave the stump. So cut down the tree, but leave it. Leave the stump there. Life still remains there. The tree might grow again in the future, but for now, cut it down. And then, middle of verse 15, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. A huge change here. We've been talking about a tree and it, and now all of a sudden, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind, or uh, literally it's the word in Aramaic for heart, let everything that he is be changed from that of a man. Let, his heart of, let the heart of a beast be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. I think that that's a reference to seven years. And we'll talk about this as we get towards the end of chapter 4. Verse 17. This edict is by the resolution of the watchers. All the angels see this. All the angels are going to bring this about. And the decision is a command of the holy ones. Why? Again, we'll talk about the contents a lot more next week. But why? Why this dream at all? Verse 17, middle of verse 17. This is the key that unlocks the whole chapter. In order that. Here's the motivation for the dream. Here's the motivation for what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. And here's the motivation for Nebuchadnezzar writing it down for you and for me. In order that the living may know, you and me would know, that the most High, El Elyon, the most high God, is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind. He is king over everything. And he's the one who gives power to people. He gives it to whom he wishes. He sets it up over the lowliest of men. Not lowly in morals, but lowly in uh, economic status. You could be the lowliest of people, and yet God could raise you up to be a king. See, Nebuchadnezzar thought, I'm awesome, and I made my kingdom happen. And this whole chapter is going to say, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not awesome. God's telling him, I'm the one who made this happen through you, and I can take it away in an instant. And that's what he's going to do in chapter 4, in some pretty crazy ways. If you haven't read it, read through the end of chapter 4. It is, it's intense what God's going to do to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. This is the, the heart of this chapter. There is never a moment when God isn't on his throne ruling as sovereign king over all. God's sovereign is a constant sovereignty. God is ruling, not Nebuchadnezzar, ultimately. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he's the one who has the authority, but it's God. One commentator said, says it this way, God rules down here, not merely up there. Dale Ralph Davis says, God rules in the kingdom of men, smelly, sinful, selfish, scheming men. There's nothing more down to dirt than that. God rules here. God rules now. God rules in this moment while he rules up there. 
God's rule is a constant rule. It's a specific rule. It's a specific sovereignty where he rules over specific individuals. He doesn't just rule in a general sense over all things, but he rules through the, the lives of specific individuals. And God's rule is an unrestricted rule. It's an unrestricted sovereignty. No one can tell God, you messed up. You're not king. You shouldn't be here. This should give us great comfort to know that this is our God. He is sovereign over all things. There is no maverick molecule in the world. God directs, ordains, predestines, plans. He is in control. That should give us amazing pause and praise to say, God, thank you that you're in control. And yet, instead of being comforted by God's sovereignty, often we kick against it. And this is the third lesson that we learn from Nebuchadnezzar. Number one, Nebuchadnezzar clearly reveals to us that we, just like he, quickly forget the wonderful works and words of God. Number two, we, just like he, are terrified to lose what we love the most. And finally, number three, the third lesson learned from Nebuchadnezzar is we ultimately want to be sovereign over our own lives. We want to be sovereign over our own lives. We want to be king over our own universe. We don't want to have someone ruling over us. We kick against that, right? We're Americans. We don't have anybody rule over us. We don't have a king. You see this today in truly unparalleled ways. I think if you read through history, I think you see a sense of self-autonomy more than you've ever seen it. You question everything. If you've ever read that book, The Death of Expertise, amazing book that describes how we are living in a time period where there's no one who's an expert because I have the internet. I'm the expert, and I don't need you. So we question everything. Everything's a conspiracy theory to us. No one can know the truth. Everyone's lying around us. Now, I understand that there are liars out there. There's bad people out there for sure. So I get this to a certain degree. But brothers and sisters, there is no conspiracy theory with our God. We don't have to wrestle or worry or wonder with our God. Our God is sovereign, and he is king, and he's in control, and we don't have to question that or wrestle with that. Now, his sovereignty would be a very bad thing if he were bad. If he were not good, it would be really bad to have the God of the universe be God over all things and not love us or care for us or be good towards us. But that's not our God. Our God is good. We can trust him. We can rest and glory in his sovereignty. But just like Nebuchadnezzar, we want to be sovereign over certain things. Maybe we say, yeah, you can handle the, the oceans. You can handle the sunrise and the sunset and the moon. We can't do that. But I can do some things. I, I want to have power and control over some things. God, you take care of the big things. I'll take care of the small things. That's what Nebuchadnezzar wants to do. I'm king over all things. I don't need God. I don't need to submit myself to him. You know, this is really what Satan ultimately did, right? Satan actually used that phrase, the most high. I want to be like the most high God, Isaiah chapter 14. I want to be like him. I don't want him to rule over me. I want to rule over him. It's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar feel, and it's exactly what you and I feel. In fact, do you remember when Satan went to Adam and Eve in the garden? 
He couldn't go to Adam and Eve in the garden saying, God's not in control of all things. Because they had just been made by him, right? So clearly, we were created. He is creator. So you can't deny that he's sovereign, that he's king, that he's the God of the universe. But what we can debate is, is he good? And so that's where Satan goes. You guys remember? Yeah, God knows if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to be like him. And in being like him, he doesn't want that. He wants to have supreme authority. He doesn't want you to rise to that level. And so he's going to deny you this. He's just a big meanie in the sky. And he's keeping all of these amazing things from you. Nebuchadnezzar here in Daniel 4 is terrified, terrified of losing what he loves the most because what he loves the most is his sovereignty over his own life and over all things. I'm king of the world. I'm king of the, the, the nations, the peoples. What about you and me? How can you tell if you do not functionally believe in the sovereignty of God? Because I think if we were to ask everyone here, do you believe God's sovereign? Do you believe he's God? Do you believe he's king over you? That he is more powerful than you are? I think we all say, yeah, of course. And then we turn around and we functionally live as if we're God. How can you tell if you don't functionally believe in the sovereignty of God? How can you tell if you don't functionally love God's control over your life? Three things. Number one, anxiety. Number two, fear. And number three, pessimism. Just Can I ask you to ask your heart this morning? Are you somebody who is characterized by anxiety? Why would you be anxious? You're anxious because you think you have control over your situation, your circumstance. You're anxious because you feel that if I relinquish control to God, somehow he's not going to help, somehow he's not going to see, somehow he doesn't love. He's not good. Are you a fearful person? If you're fearful, if you're characterized by fear, you're fearful because you don't believe ultimately that God is in control and working for your greatest good. What about your optimism versus your pessimism? I'm fine with you being a realist, but are you characterized by pessimism? Are you characterized by just saying it's all going bad and everything's awful and you just despair? Despair is a great indicator in your own life that you're struggling to believe God's sovereignty. Just look at the book of Job, right? Job glories in God and his sovereign control. And then when Job starts to question God's sovereignty and control and his goodness, which I don't blame him for, that would be a very hard thing to go through, when he starts to, he starts to go down the road of frustration, anger, and despair. So we're just like Nebuchadnezzar, trying to build up our own kingdoms so that no one can touch them and we can reign sovereign and supreme and, and in control. We frantically do this every day the reality is much of life is just daily reminders of how not in control we are. That's what life's all about. Just God daily reminding you. You're not in control. You thought you were. You're not. You're not. You're not. And so if we can wake up in the morning and say, I'm not in control. God, do what you want because you're in control and I just want to follow you. Then you turn your anxiety to trust. You turn your fear to joy and you turn your pessimism to optimism. And that's what we want. We want to be like Christ in that. Verse 17, God is allowing all these things to happen in order that the living may know. That's you and me. God enabled this account to happen to Nebuchadnezzar for your sake and for my sake. 
that all the world would see that God's in control. Do you see that? Do you see that God reigns, that his purposes will be accomplished in the world? And do you see yourself in the shoes of Nebuchadnezzar? We're all a bunch of Nebuchadnezzars, wanting to call our own shots, directing our own shows, and seldom, except in very rare moments of sanity, do we ever stop to consider how ridiculous our passion for self-deification truly is. So, what do we do with this? Really quickly in closing, those three lessons that we learn from Nebuchadnezzar, number one, that we quickly forget, just like him, the wonderful works and word of God. Number two, that we're terrified to lose what we love. And number three, we want to be sovereign over our own lives. Those three lessons, how do we stop the cycle of insanity, just like Nebuchadnezzar, replaying those over and over and over again? I want to submit to you, let's work backwards. Work backwards through them. Start with number three. You want to be sovereign over your own life. I want to be sovereign over, our, over my life. Number one, admit you're not. Admit you're not sovereign. You're not in control. Stop working to build up some indestructible kingdom. Glory this morning in your frailty and glory in your dependence on God. Don't fight for any sense of independence. Say, God, I am completely dependent on you and I love that. Secondly, if you do that, then you're going to say, I have no hope because I'm out of control. And I have nothing to work for here because I have no control over my life. I've given complete dependence to God. I'm depending on him. What do I do now? Well, instead of trying to gain what you love and not lose it, throw that all away and cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. You'll do that if you understand your dependence on God, that your sin has separated you from God, and God in his grace and love has made a way for your sin to be thrown on Christ, punished in Christ, and done away with so that you could be forgiven. And we would cling to him. That's the whole point. We don't cling to ourselves. We don't cling to earthly goods and treasures. Cling to Christ as your only treasure. By the way, if you do this, you don't ever have to be afraid of losing him. Because you can never lose him in this life. And when you die, Philippians 1.21 says, you'll gain more of him. So if, if you cling to things in this life, if you cling to satisfaction in this life, physical pleasures, temporal pleasures, things that God has given to us to enjoy, but if you cling to them as idols, as gods, number one, you will eventually lose them because you're going to die. And number two, you'll probably lose them before you die, and therefore you're going to be so let down, so frustrated, hopeless, angry, sad. But if you throw all that away and enjoy it rightly, yes, be satisfied in it rightly, but you cling to Christ alone as your treasure. You can never lose him. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And when you die, you don't lose him, you get more of him because death is gain. Admit you're not sovereign. Cling to Christ alone as your treasure. And finally, number three, instead of forgetting the works and word of God, Regularly remember and recall the goodness and grace of God. Regularly remember and recall the goodness and grace of God. This is what fellowship is for. This is what Bible study is for. This is why we wake up in the morning, we read the scriptures to remember the goodness and grace of God. This is why we sing. This is why we, we speak the word of God to one another. We fellowship together. We hang out with each other to point each other to the glory of God. And this is why we partake of communion because we forget this is our Ebenezer, that we didn't raise, but Christ raised it for us. And he said, partake of these elements so that you would remember the goodness of God, the grace of God, the glory of God. 
There are many ways that we learn lessons from Nebuchadnezzar that we shouldn't be like him. There's one thing we should be like, uh, the way that it began. Chapter 4, when he said, it's good to me to declare the signs and wonders of God. That's why Paul tells us, whenever we partake of communion, we are declaring to each other the death and resurrection of Christ and that he's coming again. We're telling each other that. We're doing that together. This is the melodic line of the whole scripture. Jesus is king. He is sovereign. We have failed. We have turned aside. We have gone after our own autonomy. We've disobeyed. And Jesus, in his kindness, says, I still want you in my kingdom. And he hunts us down. He pursues us. He dies for us. While we were yet sinners, he gave his life for us. He calls us to himself. He saves us. He redeems us. He adopts us. So now what had been lost has been found. What was hopeless is now redeemed. And now, by God's grace, we can partake in the gospel because of the gospel, by the gospel, through the gospel, to the glory and the praise and the honor of Jesus Christ, our Savior. When my kids were born, you know, that moment when the doctors just leave the room and you just get the room for like an hour. You just get to be you two and your baby. The first thing that my wife would do, and put our three kids on her chest, and the first thing that my wife would do would sing to them. And the first, the first words that any of my kids ever heard, she would sing to them. I'm not getting... would sing, Jesus, 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 there's just something about that name, Master, Savior, Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain, Jesus, 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 let all heaven and earth proclaim kings and kingdoms shall all pass away but there's something about that name Jesus we want your name to be on our lips we want your name to be the first name that is in our minds as we wake up. We want your name to be the first name, the last name in our minds and our hearts as we go to bed. We want your name to be what we live for, not our name. Not the fame of our name, not the glory of our renown. We want to destroy our kingdom building. And we want to raise up your kingdom that you're raising up. That you inaugurated at your death and your resurrection. That you're building even now. God, we want to follow you and participate in your kingdom work and relinquish control, rely dependently upon you, and cling to you, our Savior. May we glory in you even now as we meditate on the beauty of the cross. God, we love you. Help us to love you more now as we participate in these elements. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Ask the men now if they would come and grab these elements, and we're going to pass these out.
just hold them. Don't partake because we're going to partake as a church family together. But as they are passing these elements out, let this time be a time where you glory in the goodness and the grace of our Savior as we sing together of his sovereign control and rest in him.